he is about his business mm. and you do not mess with Samuel Jackson but he is so so funny I was um, on the floor we were in the diving history museum we were filming there and I'm doing some stretches on the floor because we were in there all day and I hadn't gone outside and so I was just stretching on the floor and he went outside to get some air <laughs> so he was walking past me I was in um like a, a hurdles stretch on the floor and he said look at you young people doing stupid shit like that <laughs> walks outside and I was like what <laughs> what it's episode 15 of dive in the podcast with special guest Alana Velicott Welcome to Dive In The Podcast, your favorite podcast about all types of diving, scuba, tech, freediving, and more. We cover it all. Every week on Monday, we post new episodes filled with diving news, interesting topics, environmentalism, and much more. This week, we get a chance to talk to Alana Velicott, a coral farmer, a conservationist, and a member of Diving With A Purpose. Before that, there's a new camera on the market, and a little later, we'll talk safety and social media follows. All this and more on episode 15 of Dive In The Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Justin Miller, and with me tonight is uh, Nick Winkler. How are you doing tonight, Nick? Pretty good. Uh, happy to be back on the show. Absolutely, me too. <laughs> uh, Mitt, you're here as well. How's it going, Mitt? Uh, not too bad. Very, uh, very happy to be here tonight and uh, happy to be, I think, uh, in the process of getting ready to speak to a fellow Caribbean person. So very, very happy to be here. Always exciting. Um, and uh, April's not with us tonight. She had uh, some prior commitments. So uh, hi, April, from uh, from everybody uh, here on the podcast. But uh, we've got our featured guest, as Amit was alluding to, uh, live with us for this whole recording is uh, Lana Velicott. Thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, Mitt, uh, excited to speak to another, <laughs> what's, what's the proper terminology? Someone from the Caribbean? Yeah, Caribbean person. Uh, someone you can from the say Caribbean. Caribbean or you can say Caribbean. Disney says uh, Caribbean. Everybody else says Caribbean. It's so true. All right, well, I'm glad I'm on the right side then. I think. so uh, in the news guys before we get too deep into an interview here um i know a lot of divers everywhere are super excited about the new paralens camera coming out um it's in pre-order right now who knows it could be sold out by the time this episode airs on uh on monday um but uh yeah they've got a bunch of new upgrades 4k uh 60 frames per second new uh, new uh formats for recording a display on the back um, lots of cool things. So one of the really neat things that they were talking about was that uh, they're working with uh, over a dozen partners to share uh, water statistics with uh, scientists all over the world. So get depth, temperature, and conductivity uh, readings from every scuba dive that's uploaded via their app. Yeah, that's a pretty cool idea, actually, when you think about that from a research and conservation uh lens because i mean obviously they're going to get like samples that they would never have access to otherwise so it'd be interesting to see how they take that and turn it into some kind of usable information that could help with tracking of climate change and that sort of thing so i'm stoked about that idea yeah we were talking earlier nick and you're saying normally they have you know they're sending out large pieces of equipment on boats to duke these samples and now we're just uh, popping them in the water with every other scuba diver it's going to be the ultimate crowdsourcing. Also, just looking at the depth rating for 350 meters, they're clearly like targeting research and people that are doing more extreme things because um, it's waterproof to that depth right out of box. So, yeah, it's yeah. kind of cool. Uh, price tag's kind of up there, but uh, still going to try to pre-order one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty staggering depth. Uh, I, I imagine they're probably already mounted on uh, on Harry's helmet from uh, down there in <laughs> Australia. Well, maybe that's what that fantastic uh, chamber is that he's testing is just to, you know, have a look at that. But <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll exactly. find out and do all in due yeah. time. I was just wondering if Alana had like, do you, do you know what camera we're talking about? No, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's it, um, so you've so not seen like the original Paralens. It's like this black cylindrical like little camera. You know what? Yes, I have. And I think I know one. I know someone who has one. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So the, so the new one actually does like conductivity, which I guess is for salinity. And then it measures depth like the original one does and also temperature. So you get all these like like data, uh, ocean data that like plug right into the video. Um, and then you can crowdsource that information, which I think would be kind of cool for, for science. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's really hard even to just get equipment that works topside. 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Here you can take this down to how many meters? 350. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. I'm really excited to see, you know, how that turns out and how the science community uses something like that. Easy tool for people, like uh, especially when you have like equipment that costs in the tens of thousands of dollars. And I mean, this will be under a thousand bucks, so comparatively, it's cheap. Yeah, and the amount of data sets I imagine it's going to create will be uh, astounding, you know, as well. So, yeah, uh, the the once upon a time thought about being a researcher in me says, woohoo. <laughs> awesome. You're still a researcher. <laughs> Everyone's a researcher at heart if I they suppose. want to be. Well, speaking of research, uh, Alana, can you tell us uh, where in the Bahamas you're from and a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, I am from the island of Grand Bahama, and it is uh, <laughs> it has been extremely hot <laughs> the past <laughs> couple of days, and um, the, that Saharan dust storm. Um, mm. has not made it any easier. Um, but right. So <laughs> I am a marine scientist. Um, I'm still very early on in my career, but I've gotten a lot done and I have participated in many different um, research projects here in the Bahamas. But at the moment, I am the coral restoration specialist at Coral Vita right here in Freeport, Grand Bahama. You know, the average diver that would maybe listen to this podcast as a recreational diver would probably associate the Bahamas like as, you know, typical destination for scuba with, you know, drinks on white sandy beaches. But we, we know there's more to the Caribbean than that. So I assume there's also more to the Bahamas than that. Can you kind of give us your perspective what, what the Bahamas is like? It's obviously your home. Exactly what you said. A lot of people take the Bahamas to be their playground, their backyard, in which very well can be in some respect, but you have to remember that people live here, people grow here, um, mm -hmm. families live here. And so, although, you know, you'll come to visit and enjoy, like you said, the white sandy beaches, um, people's lives actually happen here in the Bahamas. And um, in that same vein, Grand Bahama and Abaco were recently just devastated, absolutely devastated by Hurricane Dorian um, last September. And we are still strongly feeling the effects of that hurricane. What's the situation like now after after Dorian at this point? I'm going to speak for myself as a Grand Bahamian. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not from Abaco. I can only kind of say what's been publicized in the news. But for, for Grand Bahama, um, we still have not completely bounced back yet since Hurricane Dorian, especially since we've been hit by COVID-19 and all of the hardships that come with COVID, that have come with COVID-19. So persons who were out of work from Hurricane Dorian most likely kind of got maybe another job, maybe a lower end job, and then COVID-19 happened and are most likely out of a job and everyone is looking for work all over again. Mm. And um, you can see the effects kind of wherever you go. Right. Um, we also still don't have potable drinking water. Um, wow. Yeah. You, when you turn on the tap, like back when I was little, you turn on the tap and like, shoots, not even back when I was little, before September, you can turn on the tap and have yourself a, a glass of water. Some people might sneer at that, but you can drink the water that comes out of the tap and it's perfectly fine. Um, but since Hurricane Dorian, what has happened because our islands are so porous because of the calcium carbonate rock that we're made out of, um, we've had saltwater intrusion go into our um, freshwater lens. And so the total dissolved solids in our water is through the roof. And oh, wow. so it's, it's not good to drink. It's okay to take a shower in, but you shouldn't feed it to your dog. Definitely shouldn't drink it yourself. Mm. Um, you probably shouldn't cook with it. I do sometimes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because right. otherwise, <laughs> otherwise I'd have to go to a station to go in and get water. There are stations um, throughout the island for persons who um, cannot afford to go and get, um, sorry, to go and purchase right, bottled yeah. water. But there are water depots where you can go and um, purchase bottled water. But I will say that um, though Hurricane Dorian brought along a whole lot of um, single-use plastic trash because you have nothing so you know right. if if aid is going to be brought in it's most likely going to be in something disposable something single use um to make sure it's sanitary and you can use it and all of those things but um reusing water bottles has i think become an even 
bigger thing on the island now because if I would like to go and get water, I would go and buy um, expensive five gallon jugs. I think a five gallon jug and to refill it is like maybe between 13 to $15, but you can go and refill it for free at any one of these water stations. And so it's kind of promoting um, reusing water bottles and kind of ditching mm. single use water bottles. It's pretty cool. That's super interesting. Do you see any end in sight to that? Uh, is there any studies looking at, at when that water may come back to normal or will it even come back to normal? I don't know of any studies that are happening right now, but I do know that um, Grabahama Water and Sewage are testing every day to see if it will get better. But um, in areas where the intrusion wasn't as bad um, in the West, they actually have potable water now. But areas in the mm -hmm. East and um, central Grand Bahama, our wells were located eastward where Hurricane Dorian did most damage. And so all of those wells are trashed and we probably have to drill new ones, I think is, is what's happening now. We were kind of waiting to see if maybe the rain would help and it would get better through that. But I don't think that's a possibility. And I think we're right. looking into drilling new wells. You work in a coral farm. I'm going to ask you a little bit a bit more about what that involves for our listeners. But obviously that, that work is tied to to climate change, you know, and the predictions of, you know, hurricanes being more frequent and stronger, like, you know, you just described Dorian. So how, what, what does your work involve um, on the farm and how do you see that work being relevant to, to climate change? So first for our viewers listening, let's not get climate change and global warming confused. They are hand in hand, but climate change is basically a change in the average conditions um, of a particular region, like temperature, rainfall and for our oceans that means um, uh, acidity and um, salinity and other parameters like that. Um, but these changes um, that have been observed in the Earth's climate since the early 20th century are primarily driven by human activity, particularly like fossil fuels burning and then that increases heat trapping greenhouse gases and then that causes global warming, right? Mm -hmm. So we got that out of the way. And um, <laughs> evidence of climate change includes like global land and ocean temperature increases, rising sea levels, ice loss at the Earth's poles, extreme weather like Hurricane Dorian that just happened. And um, because of all of this change, corals are very, very particular. A lot of species in the ocean are very particular in um, the range in parameters they can withstand to survive. And um, because of these changes, coral reef health is collapsing around the world. And 75% of coral reefs worldwide are currently threatened by a combination of these global stressors um, from climate change. And it's projected that by the year 2050, 90% of coral reefs will be dead. And that's extremely sad because mm -hmm. there are so, so, so many benefits or ecosystem services, like things, services that we get for free <laughs> from coral reefs, um, like our economy, coral reefs are worth $30 billion annually just through coastal protection, fisheries, tourism, um, biodiversity, they provide protection, um, medicine. And speaking of which, the latest coronavirus uh, treatment mm -hmm. is actually from a sea sponge. Oh, wow. Which exists on coral reefs. So coral reefs are just super important, <laughs> right. especially for us right now. Um, it's actually uh, predicted that the majority of cancer research, um, cancer drug research, sorry, is going to be focused on marine organisms, especially ones that live on coral reefs. And so bringing that all in at Coral Vita, our main goal is to restore dying coral reefs worldwide. That sounds like it's a very uh, ambitious project, but also a very meaningful one. When you say that, you know, some 90% of coral reefs are likely going to die off. Uh, my first response to that, aside from the OMG factor, is just what are the implications of that? So you've mentioned some of them in terms of sort of the socioeconomics and uh, bits of the, the research components, but... Uh, if we tie that back to what Nick was saying as well, do you see the coral reef um, 
issues playing out as far as the global warming and climate change factors are? And, and if so, how? Oh, absolutely. Um, if, I mean, even though corals only equate for less than 1% of the ocean floor, they are habitat to 25% of marine organisms. And that's huge. Um, and also them being responsible for so many of those ecosystem services that I just mentioned, if they are gone, of course, it's only going to get worse. Um, the oceans are carbon sinks. They absorb a lot of the carbon dioxide that's in the air. And um, coral reefs are a big part of that. And if they mm -hmm. disappear, then, of course, um, the globe is going to continue to to warm, have extreme temperatures, have even worse storms. Um, and then all the other things that I mentioned, if they're not there, storm surges, we won't be able to survive them, especially um, low-lying countries like the mm -hmm. Bahamas. They're actually able to reduce wave energy by up to 97%. So if you have like a 20-foot wave or a 20-foot surge, that it can be reduced to half a foot just by having a reef in place. And this is why it's, it's so important that we realize that these ecosystems absolutely need to be protected, not only for their own sake, but for ours as well. And, you know, I can definitely... Coming from Trinidad and Tobago, we have a, a huge reef, the uh, Boca Reef in Tobago. Uh, it's so evident when you look at the at how that reef breaks the surge, and you know the the existing nylon pool there that's become kind of a world famous icon. So I can completely get with that. Um, I just just as a piece on that, uh, Nick had spoken a while back about supporting dive centers with a social purpose, and one of the episodes, and I had commented about having some of the most educational dives in the Caribbean while I was diving with that group in Tobago. It's the Environmental Research Institute of Charlottesville. And I was curious because obviously the work that you're doing, you're saying spans the globe and that obviously requires significant amounts of funding. So do you, do you guys use similar programs, sort of like bringing divers in from a tourist base to, to try and fund your research? And if so, how do you, how do you manage that? That is a component of what Coral Vita will be in the near future. Obviously not right now as borders are closed. Um, it will be a, um, an ecotourism site. And we also will host, and we have hosted, um, school groups that come in wanting to learn about corals. Coral reefs are actually a part of the uh, national curriculum. And okay. so teachers are especially encouraged to come to Coral Vita and their students can have a hands-on experience with how important coral reefs are, especially to them as they are Bahamians. Mm -hmm. um, but we are a for-profit company, and though we have a great deal of respect and appreciation for the scientists, the practitioners, and NGOs that have actually pioneered reef restoration for the past few decades, um, there are roadblocks that they face that the founders of Coral Vita realized and did not want it to be hindered by. Because most of the projects around the world are grant donation funded. They're small scale, use traditional OSIN-based coral farming techniques. But by selling reef restoration as a service to customers that depend on their valuable ecosystem services, we can inject the capital necessary to develop coral farming into an industry and achieve financial sustainability to unlock like unprecedented levels for large scale restoration, if, if that makes sense. That's mm -hmm. super interesting approach. Yeah. To talk about then bringing this, that what you're doing in the Bahamas to reefs all over the world. Exactly. And our a big goal of Coral Vita is to be global. We do not intend for Grand Bahama to be the only Coral Vita. We intend for Coral Vita to be scalable. That way mm -hmm. we can have a Coral Vita Maldives, a Coral Vita Fiji, a Coral Vita some other country. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so that because it's it's even though the Bahamas is home to some of like the last surviving, thriving coral reefs, this is a global issue and needs to be resolved globally. And so, right, we intend to have coral vitas across the globe. Mm. I also saw something that says you guys, uh, in your in your propagation of the coral, you're trying to isolate more resilient uh, species for future growth. Yes, exactly. 
So the method that we're primarily using at Coral Vita, so we're a land-based commercial coral farm, the first in the mm -hmm. world, I might add. <laughs> and um, we're using this method called microfragmentation, which was um, kind of stumbled upon by our lead scientist, Dr. Dave Vaughn, who is um, who founded the Plant Million Corals Foundation. And right. essentially, this takes advantage of the coral being able to asexually reproduce and some other really cool things that happens when a coral is fragmented. So micro fragmentation, really small fragments. So what we do is we'll have say um, a coral, maybe the size of your fist, a, a bouldering coral specifically the size of your fist. And what we do is we cut it up into very small pieces, which is really fun to do <laughs> using the diamond <laughs> bandsaw. It's a whole lot of fun. Right. <laughs> um, you should check out some of the videos on coralvita.co. <laughs> it's, it's really fun to use. Um, so we cut it up into really small pieces, um, maybe about the size of your pinky nail. And we put them onto these cement plugs that we make at Coral Vita. And what happens is they have these healing edges. If you cut something, you know, there are the edges where you've cut. Those mm -hmm. edges get grown over way faster because just as if you would cut your skin or if you're pruning a tree, it sends all of the energy to those areas that need to be healed. And so it heals over a lot faster. Right. And then what's even cooler is when you put the same individual together. So it came from one coral. You cut them up into small pieces. They're still the same individual. If you mm -hmm. outplant them or put them on the reef close to each, close to each other, they will recognize each other and be used and become a larger coral in almost half the amount of time, which is super cool. Almost the same concept as if you're growing a lawn and so you, you know, put patches in different places and then all of a sudden, boom, like it's a full lawn again. The right, same thing right. happens with corals and that's super cool. It's really, coral is pretty amazing stuff there. Yeah, that is uh, wild how that works. I actually believe I saw a video with, uh, with the founder or the, the gentleman you were speaking of stumbled upon that process and uh yeah it's uh you know it's really neat um so why, why don't you tell me about that uh what did evolution? You call it? assisted evolution yeah right so at coral vita we're able to grow corals up to 50 times faster than they would in the wild and also our goal is to increase the resiliency or bolster the resiliency of coral reefs that are currently dying and how we do this is through, I guess, the term for it is assisted evolution. And this is um, kind of using human intervention to accelerate the rate of natural evolution. And what I mean is, in order to farm our corals, we have to go out and collect wild species first. So we look at a reef and we decide, okay, this reef isn't doing so well. Let's bring it back to life. We go and we look for what we call fragments of opportunity. So corals that have um, broken off their main colony, we try to rescue those ones first. Um, but bearing in mind that we don't want to bring back any sort of disease to the farm. And so we'll look through our fragments of opportunity that we find there, bring back the best ones and um, have them acclimating in our tanks, in our raceways. And in these raceways, we can control the temperature. We can control the pH, the salinity. We can control all of these parameters. And so if we bring back a variety of genotypes, if we have a large diversity in our gene pool, it's highly likely that we are able to find individuals that are genetically tolerant to today's fluctuations in ocean temperatures, acidity and chemistry caused by climate change. So there's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then another is that because we have complete control of the parameters in the raceway, we can essentially exercise or, or strengthen these corals to be able to withstand higher temperatures or um, increased acidity, kind of replicating what we predict ocean parameters to be like in the year 2050, for example. And so right. that's called assisted evolution, where we intervene to accelerate the rate of natural evolutionary processes. So it's kind of like taking them to the gym. So we would turn up the heat just a little bit for a little while. They get a little stressed, but then we turn it right back down and they reacclimate again. And then through that process, 
they become stronger or more resilient to increased temperature in that example. Yeah, that is pretty cool. It's, um, yeah, I mean, there is, there is resilience in, in diversity, no doubt. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back in just a minute and uh, continue on this conversation. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor, Torpedo Rays Scuba. Torpedo Rays is a local dive shop in Nova Scotia. If you're not in Nova Scotia, that's okay. They've got a wonderful website, torpedorays.com, T-O-R-P-E-D-O-R-A-Y-S.com. All of the scuba gear you could ever need is there. If you can't find it, give Jason a call, 902-481-0444, and he'll be happy to help you out. And these challenging times, it's always great to shop local. Don't go to a huge, big, box help support your local dive shop buy something you've had your eye on excellent time to make a good deal buy a gift certificate to use later whatever the case may be torpedo rays and torpedorays.com will be there for you once again their number is 902-481-0444 or torpedorays.com i think we're going to change gears a little bit and kind of go from like the future um, a little bit to the past in a way um, you're also a member of a group of BIPOC divers called Diving with a Purpose. Um, yes. and the group, <laughs> and the group describes itself as a, a leading international organization that provides education, training programs, and mission leadership uh, and project support um, for submerged heritage preservation and conservation projects with a worldwide focus on the African diaspora. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with DWP? Yes. So, um, I guess. The cat's already out of the bag. Um, <laughs> but I am actually part of a six-part documentary called Enslaved. And it is um, starring, kind of slash hosted by Samuel L. Jackson. I know, right? <laughs> That's, pretty <cool. laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> and so in this documentary, we are um, exploring some of those untold stories about the African slave trade. You hear about what happens to African captives when they arrive port, they're sold into slavery, and how poorly they're treated. But you don't hear about the stories of the African captives who never make it. And I'm saying African captive and captives in that sense because they're not slaves yet. At first, they were Africans, people from Africa. And then only until after they are sold, they're slaves. So they're kind of two different things. And so we're telling those stories. And we go around the world. And um, I had to learn a little bit about um, underwater archaeology. And that's how I came across or that's how I learned about Diving with a Purpose, because this group is a big part of the documentary. And they have been absolutely, absolutely amazing and super supportive of this project. And I have certainly bonded with several of these members they are just it's it's like a family member who you never knew but the instant you saw them it we just we just clicked like that <laughs> right yeah it's fantastic you know one of the things in in this discussion as a, i guess a person of color as well when i think about that is the fact that that group exists is suggestive of the fact that maybe there's a disproportional representational of uh, bipoc people in scuba diving so would you suggest that that's true? And why do you feel that's the case? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there's even that stereotype that people of color, black people can't swim. Right? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's, I believe, I mean, scuba diving is expensive. I mean, I'm able to afford it sometimes. <laughs> the The way I think the majority of my dives actually are through volunteering. I think on my own, I probably would not have been able to afford scuba diving as a hobby. I would have probably had to have worked at um, a dive outfitter probably from young and then maybe acquired gear and knowledge and training through that avenue. But we simply just do not have access, A, to the ocean, and then, of course, B, water sports and, um, and the like. You know, so that obviously means that it presented you with a number of hurdles that you had to overcome as a BIPOC diver in your field. And so can you tell us a bit about how you negotiated that journey? Because obviously, like you said, there were some some parts of it was volunteer diving, but maybe there were other th other obstacles that you had to negotiate. How did you go about that? 
I guess first I'd like to acknowledge my own privilege and that I was um, afforded many more opportunities than I guess your your standard Bahamian by um, the current economy. Um, but really what it was in the very beginning was um, a teacher approached a group of us and said, hey, I'm a scuba diver, let's go scuba diving. And of course, excuse what I'm about to say, ha ha ha, that's so white, you're so white. <laughs> like and anything that is that is different or expensive or against the grain or not so normal is just kind of called white um, in the Bahamas. And so, you know, being biracial, my, my dad is English and my, my mom is Bahamian. And as you can hear, I don't have a very hard accent, mainly because I'm talking to you. Um, as we were discussing earlier <laughs> b- b- before, if um, if a Bahamian was to pop in the room, it was to start rah, rah, like cussing and making noise. Of course, I would then take <laughs> on that accent and be absolutely normal. Um, but I still don't have that strong of an accent. Um, I'm complected a little lighter. My curls are looser. And I wanted to blend in with everybody else. Originally, I didn't quite want to be a scuba diver because I didn't want yet another tag put on my back, like that to say Alana is not Bahamian because she's a scuba diver. But I swept that away. I really wanted to do this. I've been swimming ever since I could breathe, probably. <laughs> um, and so I started scuba diving and it really wasn't particularly difficult because we had someone backing us and saying, these kids are going to do really well in this class let's hit it. And we had a great time. Um, and I was only 13 years old, but I guess in terms of growing from that and gaining more certifications, Mm -hmm. again, from my privilege, I was afforded more opportunity than others. Um, I would like to say that there was definitely some sort of divine intervention to, to, to put me on that path. Because I honestly mm-hmm. cannot tell you how I got here today at all. <laughs> um, but I can tell you that it was very difficult and I was met with a lot of adversity. Um, even my own friends and family saying, you know, you shouldn't be a marine biologist. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so pretty. That's not going to make any sense. You're not going to make any money. How are you supposed to support a family? That job doesn't exist. And I'm just like, that really hurts. But I'm going to do it. Anyway, because I know that that's what I want to do. And so I'm going to do it. And a lot of the times, if you have a dream and you are so driven by that dream, you're going to work really hard to make sure it happens. And I'd like to think I did work really hard to to get here, despite um, the privilege that I've been afforded just by looking the way I do, sounding the way I do, because it is harder. For, for persons of color or, or darker complected persons of color with more elaborate names to get to where I am. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, your passion definitely comes through. Oh, definitely. But I will say that in the Bahamas, it's not like America where, you know, it's, it's the reverse. The majority of the people in the Bahamas are black. The majority of the people, well, almost all of the people in government are black. They're our cousins, right? So, so it's a little different. I mean, I don't want to go down the road of um, colonialism and, and all of that and how that's affected us, but I believe that we feel a different pain from African-Americans and we can breathe a little easier than African-Americans because of that. But I'm not saying, you know, we, we don't have any pain because there's, there's certainly pain there, but it's, it's a little different from what African-Americans are experiencing mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Right. Circling back a little bit to um, to the docu series uh, Enslaved, what uh, what were you doing specifically on there? You play a diver and an explorer. Yeah. Um, so in the series, um, I am exactly I'm a diver. I'm an explorer, and we are given these stories, and we go to the country where the story came from, or where the story existed, or where the tragedy happened, and we try to. Mm-hmm piece together all of the information between historians, um, diving with a purpose, um, locals, communities, culture. And we try to piece together exactly what happened. And then we present that back to the public. And that's kind of what diving with a purpose is. One of their main goals is when they come across a story or a ship 
you know, it's a race against the clock before that shipwreck is completely plundered or just completely destroyed through mm. natural events, hurricanes, divers, whatever it is. And that shipwreck right. is probably very important to the adjacent culture. And so they will try to remap or sorry, they would try to map that shipwreck, try to find small finds like pieces of porcelain or forks to try to understand exactly what life was like on that shipwreck and all of the stories or information that we can pull out of those artifacts. And then we present it to the adjacent community. Um, for their own healing a lot of the time and also for them to understand mm -hmm. exactly who they are and where they came from. And um, that was part of what I was doing. So I, I remember, if I remember correctly from our discussion um, before the show, this was one of your first cold water dives. Is that correct? Oh, so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the, the first uh, episode, um, we go to Cornwall, England and I'm like, okay, wait, what? And they said, yes, you're going to need uh, your dry suit <laughs> certification. And I'm like, oh, Christ, it's going to be freezing because we traveled in October. And everyone is like, oh, no, the sun is out. It's so great. Oh, it's not even that bad. <laughs> Let me tell you, that was freezing. <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, I got to practice uh, and, and do my certification in a pool in the Bahamas, right? And now you're throwing me into the Bristol Channel, freezing cold, can't see anything. And I'm just like, <laughs> what is this? Why am I here? <laughs> but it was absolutely amazing. <laughs> Have any of you been dry suit diving before? That's <laughs> pretty much all we do here. Yeah. What? How do you yeah, do it? Yeah. It's like diving in a Ziploc bag. It's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mitt was just mentioning this the other day. It gets to the point that when you go somewhere warm and you scuba dive, you just you have this paranoia that you don't have enough gear yeah, totally. or you're missing something because you're not wrapped in a dry suit. You're not you don't have fifty pounds of weight on you. You know, it's uh, it gets it gets really ridiculous. Yeah. So one of those dives was in, in Lake Michigan on a wreck. Was that correct? Can you tell us about that a bit? Sure. One of the episodes, um, kind of to the end of the documentary, is a really feel good episode it takes a lot of weight uh, at least it took a lot of weight off of my chest filming this episode and um, we were in lake michigan and we were telling the story about how a lot of the people in that area that, that lived along the lake um, helped freed slaves escape into canada as this was the last part of the underground railroad and so um, they would be owners of steamships um, or workers even on steamships and they would sneak the freed slaves on or they would temporarily employ them as, as cooks or as wait staff. And um, mm -hmm. when they finally got to Canada, they would say, all right, go ahead, go ahead, get off. And they would get off and be free in Canada. And it was a really great story because we got to meet so many people who yeah. really love that story and who have a lot of pride in, um, in stories like that. Yeah. And so I was able to dive um, on top of a, a sunken steamship that was known to assist freed slaves um, escaping into Canada. And it was like so cold. It's, it's, it's not even it's cold anymore. <laughs> it's really how long can I stand this pain? Because it doesn't right. feel cold. It just hurts everywhere. <laughs> Well, I mean, that seems like it's just a standard thing for us when you dive here long enough. But, uh, you know, so you bring up, uh, Alana, a really cool piece in this in that, you know, you're ex you're exploring history that traces its way, uh, you know, all the way back to the transatlantic slave trade and is you can connect yourself to that history. And I think, you know, as uh, for myself, I've looked at some of that kind of self-exploratory pieces about, you know, dentureship and what that meant to Indians who arrived in, in Trinidad. But part of that is that it carries a, you know, a bit of a personal impact. So are you able to talk to us a little bit about how that work has impacted you personally? Sure. Um, well, as I said before, I'm, I'm biracial. My dad is from England. Um, so he is white and English and my mom is Bahamian and she is black Bahamian. And so 
my skin complexion falls in between, my curls fall in between, my accent falls in between. And so I was kind of always considered in between. I was always mm -hmm. both, but neither at the same mm. time. Um, I didn't have like a really set, solid group of friends. I had several groups that I would kind of float between because things that I might be interested in, um, my one group of friends might not have access to or might not be able to do or just like did not care about it at all, but the other ones might. Um, and so mm -hmm. I actually don't think I was ever told by my parents that you are mixed and this is what it means to be mixed. Mm -hmm. I had to figure that out by myself. Um, in the Bahamas, they call, they call us um, mango skin. Do you have something like that in, in Trinidad? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they definitely have uh, come up with their different versions of it. Um, I think like uh, Dogla and other other ones like this oh, for mixed race people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so I know it's... that one. I know that one. I learned that word in, uh, in Suriname during yeah, the documentary. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a yeah, and, and you know, it's it's a very, I think it's a meaningful piece. And actually, uh, my daughter is in the same position where my, my wife happens to be white and I happen to be of Indian descent. And so exactly what you've talked about, we've tried to raise her in a way that uh, she isn't really placed into any category. But I do see her now as a, as a nine-year-old, uh, well, coming on to nine, starting to struggle with that identity piece and asking questions. And so... You know, it's a piece I'll certainly have to work through, but maybe we chat a bit about that at the end and you can you can give me some advice. Absolutely. Like, no problem at all. <laughs> but I will tell you what, though. Um, it did make me really strong in who I am because mm -hmm. one group won't completely accept me. The other group won't completely accept me. So, you know what? I need to accept myself. This mm -hmm. is who I am. This is what I like. I don't care what this person thinks. I don't care what this person thinks. I need to be secure within myself and love myself just in case, you know, one side doesn't love me or the other side doesn't love me the next day. I know I love myself <laughs> right. and I'm going to pursue right. whatever it is that I want to do. I'm going to go do whatever it is that I want to do, regardless of what friend group I'm with or, or what they may think and whatever words are, are hurled at me. Sometimes it was, it was pretty tough in, in school. Um, just having long hair is mm -hmm. or longer hair, um, being chased around with the scissors or people wow. asking me, um, if I'm American every Christ day when it's like, no, I am not. <laughs> I am a Bahamian. <laughs> I just sound different. Um, right. but it did make me strong as an individual. So I, I believe she's going to be absolutely fine. She's going to be such a strong person. You better be ready. <laughs> oh, it's, I think she's already running the show at my house. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just on, on the, on the topic of humor there, I gotta, I gotta ask just as a, uh, as a piece diving with Samuel L. Jackson, what, what is he like in real life? Is he as intense as the Pulp Fiction Samuel L. Jackson? There is, is he a laid back guy? And is he a good he diver? Is. Well, Samuel Jackson is a certified diver, but we did not get to go diving because oh, no. of, oh. well, he, no, he couldn't come diving with us. We begged and begged and begged, but he could not come diving with us. And I'm sure I've completely screwed this up, but it's something to do with um, when celebrities are currently working um, on a show or working on a movie, they're very limited in what activities they can do to make sure they uh, can, yes. I guess, show up for work or whatever it is and be safe and, you know, right, finish the right. show or finish the movie. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was considered too risky for him. And so he, he opted out, but he did sit by, um, he did sit by the, the entry where everyone was entering the water and gave everyone high fives and said a little mm -hmm. something silly before we jumped in. And <laughs> would you fantastic. believe, as I was about to jump in, he said, hey, man. And I'm like, no, 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 Mr. Jackson. <laughs> I was like, hold on. No, I am not Jamaican. I don't even think Jamaican say that. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm a Bahamian. <laughs> He's like, oh, okay. Well, well, what do you say? And I was like, you say like, you know, everything cool. Like, like yeah, man, everything cool, everything cool. And then we give, I taught him daps on camera. <laughs> and then he waved me goodbye <laughs> and I jumped in the water. But he is like that funny uncle 
that yeah. kind of sits in the armchair when everyone is like talking and chatting and he'll just like throw in a curveball every once in a while. Right. But he is about his business mm. and you do not mess with Samuel Jackson, but he is so, so funny. I was um, on the floor. We were in the diving history museum um, in Florida. Really amazing place, by the way, if you've never been, you definitely should check it out. Um, we were filming there and I'm doing some, stretches on the floor because we were in there all day and I hadn't gone outside. And so I was just stretching on the floor. He went outside to get some air. <laughs> and so he was walking past me. I was in um like a, a hurdles stretch on the floor. And he said, look at you young people doing stupid shit like that. <laughs> <Walks> outside, <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> what? And so he walks back inside later and I said, Hey, Sam, you want to join me? He's like, hell no. If I get down there, I'm never getting back up. And then walks away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So, I mean, so obviously there's a humorous side to that. And, and obviously there's a very uh, kind of a, a somber side to the work that you've done. And then there's the research oriented side of the work that you're doing. Uh, so, you know, all pretty important and deep stuff. So what does a person like you do in your downtime just to kind of decompress and relax? Oh, you just saying the word put me at ease and made me want to exhale. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's so incredibly hot at the moment. Um, I try to either pick Saturday or Sunday as my inside day where it's... um like regular things that everybody else does, like laundry and sweeping and mm -hmm. hugging your dog, and <laughs> mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of painting. Um, but the weekends are when I get a chance to work on my projects. I love DIY. Um, and at the moment, I'm obsessed with making things out of pallets. They are <laughs> absolutely terrible to take apart. But once you have all of the pieces, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> and so I've made a bookshelf. I'm currently making a desk that incorporates pallet wood. I've made a couple of planters. Yes, I'm part of the, oh, I need to grow my own food, food security okay. uh, kind of trend that's happened lately. Yeah. But I have a very small balcony. And so there really is no walking room on my balcony at the moment. It's just plants. <laughs> Uh, so a little bit of gardening. Um, I am the proud new owner of a, a boat board, B-O-T-E. It's wow, a really cool. cool and very expensive uh, company, I think out of Florida, um, that do paddle boards. And I have a very small mm. apartment and I cannot fit a massive 11.6 fiberglass paddle board in here. I mean, I probably <laughs> right. could, but I'd have to mount it on the wall. So I got an inflatable one. And um, so weekends have been uh, playing with my new paddleboard, taking my dogs to the beach, um, and a little bit of inside time just because it's it's so hot. And um, yeah, I don't mm -hmm. want to be, I mean, I would love to be like that iconic, wrinkly old woman who has many, many sea stories, but I just don't want the wrinkly <laughs> part. So right, I try right. to stay inside a little bit on the weekends. Very cool. Um, speaking speaking of sea stories, uh, do you have any favorite? Do you, do you have a favorite book about uh, the oceans or diving you might want to share with uh, listeners? I'm just totally putting you on your spot there. Sure, I'm going to be an absolute nerd right now, and I'm going to say that the Paul Human books are probably my favorite books. <laughs> I am. Yep. I'm really really bad at reading um, anything. Honestly, um, <laughs> I I usually <laughs> read scientific papers. I do well there. I do well with textbooks, and so that's usually what I cling to. Um, but the Paul Human books are my favorite. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's um, uh, a set of ID books that goes through reef fish, reef creatures, and reef corals. And every time I open it, um, I either find something new or when I'm snorkeling or diving, I find something new and I draw it. I keep a slate, um, like a very mm -hmm. small, I call it baby slate. I keep a very small slate uh, in, my, in my pocket, in my BC. And whenever there's something new, I stop what I'm doing and I take my time and I write out and draw out whatever it is that I saw. And I come back probably without even rinsing my gear first. And I go and I find out exactly what that is. I love that part of diving. And that's why those are my favorite books. They answer my questions like right away. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. And, and they're pretty staple for any anybody that dives in the Caribbean for sure. So thanks for mm -hmm. recommending those. Yes, I love, love those books. Yeah, I definitely can relate to that. I remember being in 
in Fiji and like seeing a new rank on the dive. And of course there's like 8 million different varieties in, uh, in Fiji of new rank. And they're like the minute you get back to the Island, you're like flipping through the books. So I would have with the one thing here and the red stripe there and the, yeah. I feel <laughs> totally felt through that whole time there. You need you needed a baby slate, Justin. <laughs> I needed a baby slate. Yeah, baby. you need a baby slate. Oh my gosh, gonna... baby slates in the podcast. That's so great. The interns are going to love this. <laughs> it's it's I think it's going to be the, sh- the so we name our episodes after the funniest or a funny line in the show, so I think mm. that's going to be the title yeah. of the episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my, oh, baby just slate, for the oh record, I've got yeah. a baby slate as well, so <laughs> I'm going to maybe I'm going to start yes, sticking that in the pocket. Baby slates for the winter so convenient. Yeah. I'll have to uh, find one and uh, and yeah, we'll start selling in the dive shop as a patented baby <laughs> slate, and we'll send you some commissions or something. Um, <laughs> it's like when you want to have that like slightly longer conversation that's kind of outside of the dive signals, especially if you're diving right, with someone right. who's kind of new. You just pull out baby slate and write whatever your question is or what right. the hell are you doing on the baby slate and show. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> Who taught um, you to dive? <laughs> <laughs> Burn. Brutal, brutal. Um, so, so Lana, where can uh, where can people find you online, or where would you like to share, or do you have any projects you want to promote, or anything uh, do you want to plug, or whatever? This would be a great time for that. Sure. Um, well, I guess I'll start off with the Coral Vita website. Um, if you mm-hmm. want to learn more about Coral Vita, please head on over to the Coral Vita website at coralvita.co. That's C-O. It's not a typo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you'd like to contact me, my email is alana, A-L-A-N-N-A-H, at coralvita.co. It's not a typo. It's dot C-O. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then... If you don't necessarily want to talk to me and you just want to stalk and look at all my cool photos, you can go to my Instagram um, at Alana Bellacott, no space, A-L-A-N-N-A-H-B-E-L-L-A-C-O-T-T. Um, and also, you are able to adopt a coral at Coral Vita if you're interested and you really want mm-hmm. to, um, if you really want to help, I guess, with coral mm-hmm. restoration. There are many other ways you can help many simpler ways, but if you feel like this is how you want to contribute to rescuing reefs, adopting a coral at Coral Vita is the way to go. Um, essentially, you know, it, it costs, there's a certain dollar value um, to collecting a coral, having it in the tank, taking care of it, and then outplanting it. And um, you can adopt a coral for $100, and that is essentially the whole process of taking mm-hmm. a coral from a damaged reef um, to our raceways, bringing it back to health, and then out planting it back onto the coral reef so that future generations can enjoy all of these very, very important ecosystem services. Um, so you can head on over to the website, check that out. Um, in the future, we plan on, you know, you get a picture of your actual coral and you get to name oh, it yeah. something silly like Digby. And then you get to see, <laughs> uh, you'll have updates on Digby. How's Digby doing in the tank, in the tanks today and where Digby <laughs> got outplanted. Um, that's coming up really, really soon, mm-hmm. but that's pretty for cool. now. Yeah. You, yeah. Mm-hmm. That would be neat. Uh, you know, I can only imagine you, you, uh, you sponsor a coral and then, you know, a few years later you come down and dive the site that it's replanted on and that'd be really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's all in the plan coming up super soon. We're going to take one more break here and then uh, we're going to come back and uh, we'll wrap this show up. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a second to thank our sponsor, Torpedo Rays Scuba. Torpedo Rays is a local dive shop in Nova Scotia. If you're not in Nova Scotia, that's okay. They've got a wonderful website, torpedorays.com, T-O-R-P-E-D-O-R-A-Y-S.com. All of the scuba gear you could ever need is there. If you can't find it, give Jason a call, 902-481-0444, and he'll be happy to help you out. And these challenging times, it's always great to shop local. Don't go to a huge, big box help support your local dive shop buy something you've had your eye on excellent time to make a good deal buy a gift certificate to use later whatever the case may be torpedo rays and torpedorays.com will be there for you once again their number is 902-481-0444 or torpedorays.com welcome back everybody um 
right now we would normally be going to April's uh, safety tip, but as April's not here, uh, Lana has graciously uh, told us about one of her uh, safety experiences that she'd like to share with us for this week's safety tip. Yes. (laughs) So um, (laughs) a time ago, I was on a a research vessel and the current was ripping. Um, We actually had to form a human daisy chain uh, holding on to um, the ascent descent line. And our daisy chain was at an angle. The current was so strong. Obviously, we had aborted the dive and we were all trying to come up. But I got swept away a little too far from everyone else. And I did not have a safety sausage with me. Uh, Luckily, I have these obnoxiously bright yellow jet fins from the Scuba Pro. Mm -hmm. Love those. Shameless plug for those guys. Um, (laughs) And I waved it in the air. And they were able to see me. Um, Sorry, they were able to see me. And they came over in a rib and scooped me up. And from that day, I knew I was never going to dive ever again without a safety sausage. And I have one that folds really small that fits into mm-hmm. my pocket. Not the pocket with the baby slate. The other pocket. <laughs> the other pocket. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep that um, thing so yes, safe. I, <laughs> I definitely recommend um, investing in a safety sausage. It can honestly save your life. Yeah, the, the the tip with the fin, I think it's 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 one I've used before. Um, also, what I find really useful if uh, you have a sausage, it's usually I have a main one, and usually I keep like a backup one because it's it's happened before that you get the main one like either doesn't inflate or it bursts or like it comes off the line, and it's always good to have a spare one as well. But the fin tip is is super super helpful as a as a quick backup. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I definitely recommend it. I mean those ocean swells they don't look like much but when you're bobbing around in there your little head is uh not spe- specifically your little head alana but you know the <laughs> anyone's general little head is uh is very hard to see and uh and you can quickly you know m- half the time not be visible to a boat so that sausage that marker yeah buoy, I, sp- I spent seven hours at sea once waiting to be picked up and uh it you just need like a three or four foot swell and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I'm You're definitely going to ask you about that. After the show. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Well, it might be an episode on the show one time when we, when we interview Nick. Wow. That sounds cold and uncomfortable. <laughs> well, it was in the Caribbean, so that was a plus. Yeah. Still cold? Sitting there in the water for seven hours? I'd be freezing. Hanging out. He was just working on his tan. Um, <laughs> Nick, uh, also, also filling in for April. Nick, you've got a social media follow for us this week. Yeah, so um, I don't want to take the uh, win out of uh, Alana's sales with uh, her super duper cool Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, going back freediving and more local to Canada is um, Apnea City. Um, it's literally at Apnea City on Instagram. And they're the freediving company that uh, run uh, a lot of freediving courses and training um, and exploration of lots of cool stuff based out of Montreal. So anybody in the Quebec region would, would be... Um, be good to follow um, and look them up. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of cool. You know, they have a company in the middle of Canada and they they run a successful freediving school all year round, which kind of blows my mind. So they have a pretty cool account to follow at Apnea City. Thanks for that. And yeah, we all love those guys. So it's great to share them with everybody. Well, that does it for today's episode. I'd like to thank you again, Alana, for joining us. It was a really special episode and we learned, we learned a lot um, about what you do and it was really, really neat. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It, it was fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and we we all learned about baby slates, which is, of course, the next big thing. Yep, yep. I'm taking my baby, baby slate. slate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Amit, uh, thanks also for joining us tonight. Uh, very happy to be here and uh, very happy to speak to another fellow Caribbean kid. I guess in this one episode, we've got three Caribbean kids hanging out together. So what are the odds of that? So all obviously very happy <laughs> hey. to be here. Yeah, man. <laughs> Sorry, you're at number, Justin. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm just the uh, weird outcast from from the desert. <laughs> we adopt you, Justin. Oh, Absolutely. Okay. Thanks. All right, uh, and Nick, thank you for uh, for being here as always. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And Alana, thank you for agreeing to come to the show. Um, it was super awesome. If you're ever up for another cold water dive, um, you're more than welcome to come here. It will be open. And uh, actually, it'd be nice uh, to meet you in person one day and maybe come to the Bahamas when, you know, the world's back to a little bit more normal. Yeah. You know what? Sure, yeah. I'll take you up on that. I'll, t- I'll try it again. It is amazing when you finally get your balance in a dry suit. Mm-hmm. 
And you can, then. <laughs> the the feeling of just laying there in a buoyant, neutrally buoyant dry suit is just like... It is cool. pretty cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Ziploc bag feeling. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to drag Nick down to the Bahamas at some point, too, so you never know. We might end up knocking on your door and saying, hey, what's up? Who has to drag anyone to the Bahamas? I know. I, I was going to say, I don't need any dragging. <laughs> I've already agreed. <laughs> Fantastic. He's telling people you're dragging me down. I've already agreed to this. It's going to make it a more interesting story. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I'll drop yeah. you a pin. Just let me know when you're here. <laughs> Fair enough. You can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook with at divein.thepodcast. You can email us divein.thepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send us a voicemail on our website, www.diveinthepodcast.com. If you send us a voicemail, we'll try our best to play it back in an upcoming episode. You can find me at idiveok, April's at April Weikert, and Nicholas Winkler is at Nicholas Winkler Photography. You can find links for everything we mentioned on today's episode in the show notes or on our website, diveinthepodcast.com. We'll see you next Monday when we speak to Peter Supel about tech diving in Grenada, the wreck capital of the Caribbean. This episode of Dive in the Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Race Scuba. Head over to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thanks for listening.